0: Discover new mind and body hacks to thrive as a human today. The Institute for Aliveness is here to teach you all the things you never learned in school. From talking poop, sex,
1: childhood trauma, emotional intelligence, psychedelics, and of course, fasting and food. This is a podcast that changes lives. Join your host, Dr. Andrea Page, as she travels seven continents to find the most captivating, impactful humans for you. So I'm very happy to be with you here, David. Um, it's a great honor to get to connect with you. I have been, obviously, as many listening, I'm sure, have been an active permaculture enthusiast for about 15 years. Um, my brother's a permaculture designer, and uh, permaculture is a, an integral tenant of the work that we do at the Institute for Aliveness. Um, not only, obviously, permaculture of the land, but of relationships, of community, of self-care really looking at the, the relational gardens in all aspects of our lives and that quality of holism is um and sustainability and self-maintenance to a certain extent is a big part of how we perceive health and the human body at all levels um, mind and spirit as well and so yeah, I would love if, um, if you wouldn't mind to introduce yourself a little bit to the audience and, and share your story in whatever way it wants to come through.
0: Yeah, just commenting on that first, The over the years I've seen an increasing number of people come to permaculture through different fields that are not necessarily connected to its origins in ecology and uh, agriculture, gardening uh, and health and well-being is definitely over the years been one of the, those areas that uh, a lot of people have said oh, this connects with traditions, uh, disciplines or practices that uh, people are engaged in. Certainly back in the 70s, in the tumult of ideas around what we'd call sustainability uh, today, I was a a young student uh, studying environmental design, so architecture, landscape architecture, uh, planning. And at that time, I met uh, Bill Mollison, who was an academic in a different institution, and we collaborated to uh, be the co-originators of the permaculture concept which led to the publication of Permaculture One in 1978. And since then, of course, by many different pathways, permaculture has become uh, a global network, uh, many people would say a, a global movement and has connected and reinforced uh, a lot of other ideas relating to sustainability and wellness, wellness of people and wellness of the planet.
1: Beautiful. And um, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but where kind of, where did it come from? And did you ever see it going so far? Like, what was your initial angst as to feel the need to create something new?
0: Yes, well, the first... Uh, aspect or the sort of origin point more distinctly was I was studying in a course which was perhaps the most radical experiment in tertiary education in Australia's history Uh, and issues of ecology in design were already uh, a very strong interest then. Uh, My interest in the design professions was all after the first year of my studies was already starting to gravitate around landscape architecture more than architecture but practically I was uh, also uh an emerging practicing builder as well and in some ways I think of myself as a better ecological architect than ecological farmer uh, uh personally uh But that was in a context where the ideas of the limits to growth, the famous report that was published uh, only two years before I met Bill Mollison, and then ideas like uh, EF Schumacher's uh, Small is Beautiful was published in 1973. Uh, A lot of those ideas were influencing the Uh, my response to Bill Mollison when he said to me, so what are you going to get into in your next year of study, given how free and open environmental design was? And I said, well, I'm interested in the intersection between landscape architecture as a design profession and process, uh, agriculture and the principles of ecology, and that I could already see how two of those overlapped in various ideas or new concepts, uh, but I couldn't see where all three were brought together. And um, as the eclectic ecologist that he was, he said, well, how about this for an idea? If most places on the planet, nature creates some sort of forest as an optimal climax ecosystem, Uh, Why doesn't our agriculture, if not look like a forest, at least function like a forest? That is dominated by perennial plants, um, have uh, multiple integrations of animals and plants characterised by diversity rather than monoculture, all, all different aspects. And that was the start of a journey that led to the sort of first Characterization of permaculture as uh, uh, not just a reform or refinement of agriculture as the primary way that humans uh, are provided with their most fundamental needs, especially the most complex of all food, uh, uh, but how uh, that actually required and provided the foundation for the redesign of what today we would call sustainable uh, culture. So we used the word permanent, which I think can be critiqued as much as um, the later concept of sustainability in terms of what are you sustaining? (laughs) Uh, uh, But even from the beginning, um, permaculture was uh, about permanent agriculture as a foundation for and including permanent culture uh, so that meant it really sort of applied to you know the redesign of everything but the spread of that uh, you know and enlargement of that has been a long process through uh, many people but i think It's important to recognise that the uh, first oil crisis of 1973 uh, triggered this huge wave of interest in what we would call sustainable alternatives amongst other mainstream and geopolitical uh, responses. But there was a a huge interest in uh, uh, these sort of fields. I think the timing of Permaculture One published in 1978 between the two oil crisis, global oil crises of 1973 and 1979 was in a sense perfect timing to catch what I call the first great wave of modern environmentalism in uh, the late 1970s. Some people would would date it from uh, earlier in the in the 60s, and it was a sort of a a building wave. But the the recognition that uh, human ingenuity doesn't necessarily trump uh, nature's limits uh, was a big part. And it was also, I think, uh, both for me personally, but also for Bill Mollison, who was a generation older than me, our experience of and observation of oppositional environmentalism, uh, and both of us in some ways were at the forefront of, of those uh, movements, and brought us to a place where um, uh, both of us were more focused on how do we create the world we do want rather than fighting against what we don't want. So I think that was a very much a, a drive uh, for me. For him it was at the front lines of the emergent environmental movement in Tasmania. For me, when I met him at 19, it was really more reflecting on my parents' political radicalism throughout my life, especially against the war in Vietnam and, and other actions, you know, fighting for social justice, uh, fighting for all the, the great causes. But I certainly felt... No, we're just going to go and create the world we do want, not accept that the power lies elsewhere. So I think that has been like a a core driver behind the idea of how do we use nature's principles to design human systems.
1: Wow, it's beautiful um, to to really hear the history and imagine you um, at 19 and with these... Divergent ideas I think that there's really something to interdisciplinary studies when you can take concepts um, and look at how they might intermingle and and fuse together and create yet something new and. um, yeah i'm curious as to how entrepreneurs could start to think like permaculturalists and and especially having known the history of uh, being able to not only take systems that work but to take approaches like stewardess approaches to how we're interacting with our environment um be it you know financial markets or gardens um and take that one step further to to truly become interdisciplinary it's super inspiring um and i mean so it's been 42 years 43 years um And uh, that, that's just since the publishing of the book. So I'm, I'm guessing that it's been almost 50 years for a lot more of these ideas to start to percolate and spread around, around the world. Um, did you see it coming like this? And um, yeah, I mean, what were the main drivers? Like when you have something that works, which is what a lot of what we talk about at the Institute for Liveness, things that work, that's all we're really interested in. Um, like what rallies the forces of of humanity to really change course?
0: Yes, well, I suppose back in the 70s, some of the naivety that I I suppose um, expressed was that once the recognition that uh, the limits to uh, material growth of, Uh, societies based on unsustainable extraction of resources and dumping the wastes in the environment, once that became evident as a scientific base, uh, that that would be understood, if not at the level of governments, at the level of markets, and the price of non-renewable resources would rise as people foresaw into the future. (laughs) Uh, But, of course, you know, That didn't happen, and uh, although the Club of Rome's uh, report, um, the report to the Club of Rome of the systems modellers who saw the unravelling of these growth systems in the uh, mid-21st century, we actually thought that would happen much faster just because of, oh, if these limits are there then we have to actually transform society. And certainly we saw that as uh, a frugal simplification, uh, returning to a lot of understandings from ancient traditions, from recognising the wisdom um, of indigenous and traditional cultures of place, uh, of a dematerialization of culture would inevitably follow, but that the first Step was to redesign the most basic needs uh, of, of people and that agriculture was at the core uh, of that problem and that modern people were very disconnected from their sources of subs- sustenance. So a lot of our agenda was really about get reconnected to one's sources of sustenance. So, of course, gardening became emblematic of that. Produce some food. You know that sort of deep, um, direct connection to nature, uh, rather than uh, just a conceptual or abstract connection to nature. So initially, you know, we were, you know, quite confronting in that. Mollison you know, was talking about, you know, ripping out lawns and roses, not because he sort of really hated roses, uh, but Um, confronting that middle-class culture, which was actually emulating affluent culture, which said, we don't need to have our hands in the dirt. We are above that. And we saw this as coming in the ornamental front garden, which was emulating the English aristocracy going back onto their rural estates where there were... um, sort of messy tenement farmers making a living and getting rid of all those and having Capability Brown and other landscape architects design great sweeping vistas and classic landscapes that they could look out on their estates because they actually had other sources of wealth from colonial exploitation, which now were much greater than the wealth they gained from the land. And then the English middle class copied that with an ornamental front garden, which said, We are people of means, we don't need to produce anything. And so permaculture, in some ways, was a direct, like, countercultural attack on that, saying, Get connected, you know, grow something useful, um, sort of understand what underpins you. And in that, it was also coming to terms with the massive. Um, uh, abundance created by uh, fossil fuel slaves, as well as the colonial exploitative relationships and dispossession of Indigenous people, that these are what sustained the, uh, you know, the the expanding global middle class. Uh, so that process of of suggesting a, a sort of a more humble approach. We thought would move from sort of fringe um, uh, ideas to actual some sort of necessity, <laughs> and of course, the system worked out ways to sort of keep working around um, uh, at least the boundaries, the ecological boundaries, to um, you know becoming smarter and smarter at we can continue to sort of e- exploit at the same time that those elements of uh, thinking differently developed more and more layers in different societies in different ways and more and more waves would keep coming. And I've seen multiple of those waves where people have said, for all different reasons, not just this won't work on a planetary scale or this is unethical, but actually I don't like living this way. And a lot of our motivations were around that anyway, that we're going to live in a different way because it's actually a better way to live. Now, we were not under delusions that we weren't benefiting from all of the systems, even indirectly, that we were critiquing. But I think that positive attraction idea um, of permaculture has been uh, an enormous strength because one of the structural problems is if you have a mass population which are really, in simple material terms, richer than any of the ancient kings um, and given the addiction, addictive nature of materialism, it's hard to allure a mass population to say, hey, give up all that and." You know sort of do something simpler you know and you know we've seen that in a lot of ways practically in, in, in permaculture especially permaculture in the global affluent world whereas of course permaculture has also worked in uh, uh, some of the most destitute places and to just give you a simple Sort of practical example, if you look at the cool permaculture design idea of a living fence, of growing plants that form, you know, a, a spiny or interlocked barrier that creates a barrier to animals to protect gardens. Fantastic biological idea, um, you know. Uh, well, you know, in the affluent world, it's just actually easier to go down the hardware store and get some galvanized wire. <laughs> But, you know, in many places in Africa, for example, where people haven't been able to grow food because of ranging livestock through a village, introducing a plant species that can, be, can do that function could be a transformative technology, if you like, a biological technology that people would adopt because it's, this is improving their material conditions. Whereas in affluent places, it's sort of that idea has got to come about through its sort of cool ecological um, or other spin offs. Um, And consequently, you know, sometimes it's just uh, sort of easier to continue to use the, you know, the the less sustainable uh, solution. So that tension of, uh, you know, Permaculture working in really quite different environments in the world means that uh, the attractors in it of what encourages people to say, this works, um, can be uh, quite different. Um, Obviously that's a a sort of a very complex and, and diverse situation, but it also relates to what you were saying about entrepreneurial thinking and in that way permaculture as an environmental movement has been more entrepreneurial which you might associate with uh you know the the green tech entrepreneurs you know at the extreme end you know the Elon musks of the, of this world um but most people would would say there's a uh an aspect which is sort of very different about permaculture, which is very grounded, bottom up, starting from the person rather than starting from large uh, organisation and global structures. So starting with the person and the household and the community level and the entrepreneurial level is at that small uh, business whole person uh, level uh, level so um, and some of those are cultural distinctions and just different ways in which permaculture is being applied and certainly there's interests in permaculture and permaculture has in begun to inspire people working at those other levels as well where uh, people like me would see some structural contradictions, but there's also important engagements at that uh, level. But certainly most permaculture practitioners, um, certainly in the affluent countries, have worked within a small business, startup, um, self-employed, um, inherently entrepreneurial uh, approach, uh, which requires one to say, okay, how does this work from day one? What's the the minimum viable product of what we're we're doing so there's a whole there is a connection into across into those um uh processes i think
1: i love it so the first the first part of what you were saying kind of the social demographic political um, aspects of it relates so deeply to myself. I mean, the things that you might not have read about me online are that originally I'm a political, uh, political economist who believes in post-capitalism. And that's kind of what drove me off-grid to um, a place called Oroville in the South of India. Perhaps you've heard of it. We have a lot of permaculture there. <laughs> and that was my community of rebirth um, in in understanding new ways of existence. And I would already been, um, very exposed to permaculture before then. But of course, living in more of um, an off grid rural situation would help my deepen my relationship. Um, And that's when I was also studying deep ecology and looking at the intersection between ecology and philosophy. And um, I later went to do a master's in ethnobotany.
0: Um,
1: And my specialty is gastroethnobotany, which is the study of food plants and people's relationship to food plants. And so um, all of this kind of intertwines into, yeah, it's just the, the deep social political roots of where a movement like this comes from. And it's, it's just, it's really refreshing to hear <laughs> that from you. Um, and yeah, I mean, who, I've also worked with Vandana Shiva in, in Dharadun in Northern India and um, seen the importance of seed saving and um, the intercropping that she does there um looking at 12 as the optimal number and things like this um, and i'm wondering like is there any because i've also i've actually years ago for oroville radio i got i was blessed enough to interview the founder of biomimicry right so you have all of these kind of neo approaches yeah to um environmentalism if you want to call it that or to a different dynamic of how humans are organizing and how we're self-subsisting so many of these things that work we could say coming up is there any kind of intermingling as to like what is the current sharing of ideas outside of academia because academia research at large is very incentivized by um you know companies that don't have uh the the bigger picture or progressive movements in mind um yeah what is what does that look like
0: yes well i'm just going back a step it's It's interesting you mention uh, Oroville. My first uh, awareness of Oroville was when I was living in rural Tasmania in an isolated valley called Jackie's Marsh and my neighbour were a couple who were um, uh, originally from New York and who uh, were helped in the founding of uh, Oroville. And uh, I remember... um, uh, be, marvelling at this man who was um, in his uh, 60s doing yoga every day and looked like he was in his uh, 20s. <laughs> and uh, um, that was the sort of first of my awareness of um, the things that had been happening in that, uh, in that community. And I yeah, later heard of um, the fusion of, of, of permaculture ideas uh, there. And of course, permaculture did actually spread to India quite early on, but that connection between uh, different sources of inspiration and that happening outside of academia, I think, has been quite a, a strong thread uh, over. The last uh, fifty years, and I think it's um, it's uh, sometimes this emergence of countercultural ideas uh, is is really interesting to see. For example, uh, before I went to Japan, I of course was very aware of uh, Masanobu Fukuoka's ideas, which uh, uh, Bill Mollison actually acknowledged as an uh, an important missing link in in uh, uh, permaculture of uh, how to grow annual grains in a, a sort of permaculture way. And I, the sort of historian in me sort of had already acknowledged that in a way uh, permaculture was an, a branch off the tree of organic agriculture, which was itself a reaction to the early phases of industrialization of agriculture and that that tree sort of germinated really in Europe in the 1930s and uh, sort of, you know, had branches in North America and um, other uh, places and that um, permaculture was a really a 1970s sort of a branch from that uh, larger holism of organics. And I assumed that Fukuoka's work was similarly, but uh, then, you know, going to Japan, I, I realised that actually there's, you know, all of these original ideas that were never translated into English and the origins of natural farming in Japan go back to the 1930s, about the same time. And then really, when you look at the origins of organics in the United States, and then Steiner's work in stimulating the origins of biodynamics in the, uh, um, in the 1920s, that these are sort of like really independent uh, realisations by people in their own context, uh, but connecting to I- ideas that whose time was sort of come or arriving simultaneously. At a smaller scale, we can see... That the Australian land care movement in the 1980s emerged simultaneously independently from farmer groups uh, at about five different locations uh, across the continent, one of which here in central Victoria was actually strongly connected to permaculture, even though people today would never sort of even recognise that permaculture sort of had that. Uh, connection at source to um, uh, to the land, Australian land care movement, which is now seen as very much a sort of a government uh, program. So I think all of these cross fertilizations, this sort of hybrid vigour and this uh, novel um, cultural uh, fusions that are happening outside uh, formal institutions and outside formal relationships have, have always been important. At the same time, I would recognise that within movements, there can be a self-referencing um, sort of bubble where people uh, only acknowledge their their own uh, sort of um, uh, subcultural innovation and can sometimes get into a loop where they, they are looking at the superficial expressions of that and don't recognise uh, sources of inspiration that are coming from elsewhere. So one of my roles, <laughs> actually ironically, as the co-originator of permaculture, is to always be pointing um, pointing out to people within the movement uh, other sources of these, um, uh, these uh, similar and complementary uh, ideas. And when I was in Cuba in uh, 2007, Uh, people on an advanced permaculture course there were very interested in my take on what was the relationship between permaculture and agroecology which has of course been a major influence in especially in Latin America in the development of uh, uh, more sustainable and uh, holistic ways of uh, approaching agriculture and you know it's interesting to sort of compare the strengths and weaknesses and complementarities of those uh, different uh, movements.
1: What was Cuba like in 2007? I didn't get to make it there until 2017. So, you know, in those 10 years, a lot happened.
0: <laughs> yes, well, already in 2007, the, the, the depth of the crisis, of course, was over and the the tensions about how to maintain what had been achieved in the crisis uh, was certainly um, uh, compared with, you know, how does uh, Cuba reboot into the uh, still accelerating modern materialist world. Um, But it was very interesting that the organo Ponico system, which had been central to Cubans having adequate nutrition from intensive, organic, essentially urban farming systems that, you know, had never been done in Cuba before, that those systems were actually still being maintained as the primary way to provide um, uh, fresh vegetables to the population. They hadn't, certainly at that stage, gone back to large-scale field uh, monocultures, um, which, of course, had been the origins of agriculture in Cuba, both from its uh, plantation colonial heritage and from the Soviet version of sort of hyper-industrialised agriculture that Cuba had been influenced by. So there were some things like that that were... um, you know from the crisis looked like they were sort of uh, continuing um, entities. Uh, for me I think you know having grown up in a family of um, leftist political radicals and my parents were actually members of the Australian Communist Party before I was born I thought I sort of had a fairly good understanding of how uh, Um, a socialist economy might work but uh, being there and having the best interpreters available more and more things about Cuba and how it actually worked you know started to um, sort of slowly uh, uh, reveal themselves and I realized there were so many aspects that it was very very hard to understand from a point of view of being, being embedded in in uh Uh, market systems and you know ideas like oh well education in Cuba is free well that doesn't just mean that what the government provides is free what you provide is free also you can't charge uh, you know for any course and it was it was very interesting the only place in Latin America where I actually didn't get paid anything and the professional interpreters were given leave from their jobs to ride their bicycles, you know, 30 kilometres to have the privilege of just interpreting for me as something they were doing as part of, for the good of society. So there seemed to be so many things that just operated bit outside of the monetary economy that were just, um, this is done because it needs to be done, which was both incredibly refreshing and incredibly challenging uh, for um, people who are, you know, embedded in in market systems.
1: Yeah, and I mean that same discomfort with change, if you will, or discomfort with adaptation to the new, is what many people would be feeling to detach from. Uh, the current food politics and the current, um, you know, supply chains that they're experiencing. The convenience of going to the grocery store, having their groceries delivered, like this kind of thing. So it's it's the same, brushing up against something new. And um, yeah, I don't know if I don't. I I'm still looking for uh, Noam Chomsky's ide fixe, the the different way that we can organize ourselves that will be um, inviting to who we are and both liberal open. Um, and socially fair and just and um yeah I mean food is obviously at the heart of that and something I didn't say before um in one of the earlier uh times when you were speaking and talking about people's um relationship to the land and moreover their relationship to food this is something that I speak very much about in um the fasting because I'm uh a professional in the area of long-term fasting, and uh, this is essentially how I express my ma- my naturopathy practice. And we talk a lot about food addiction. We talk a lot about um, coping with emotions through eating, um, through depression, as actually just a form of disconnection, and it's disconnection from, of course, yourself, disconnection from. A sense of belonging a community disconnection from purpose in life and disconnection from a sense of knowing where your food comes from and that's what brings up all of the insecurity around uh food and and why people are so overly addicted to it and that's what i abruptly face at the moment whenever i bring someone into a longer term fast and uh, yeah it's 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 always fun to play mm. with yeah
0: well that's um, very interesting because uh i i see uh, a lot of my work over the years has is, is been about ecological realism and understanding you can't, um, you know, fast-track the growing seasons or escape the sort of energetic and uh, ecological laws that that govern us. And yet so much of the transformation that can take place ultimately is not about transforming the environmental systems but it's actually the inner transformation of ourselves and as in acknowledging food production and its distribution and the whole culture of food is like so central to any viable uh, culture but as you say it's also this deep addictive process and when I look at the possibilities for the in a transformation then I become a lot more uh, positive about the potential for humans to at least in principle have an easy path down from the the global crisis which is created after having extracted hundreds of millions of years of worth of stored sunlight and burnt it in a a few generations that inevitably you look at the realities of that and you say that is a very harsh path down for humanity. But then, when I look at that other side of how many ways in which we could actually, um, through the internal transformation, find ourselves living eve ever more lightly on the planet. You know, a sort of almost a uh, an etherealization. Of our uh, support base, and you're talking about, yeah, the most fundamental one, um, and uh, about uh, addiction to food and that fear of um, uh, of not enough, and uh, and of course the health-giving properties of actually giving the body a break <laughs> from food. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly, is, uh, and I mean. Crazy
0: everything needs a break even the the best things Uh, you know you don't want too much of a good thing and so much of the structural problems that permaculture design is attempting to grapple with is is not to do with that so many things um, in the past in the modern world uh, have been inherently bad but that they've been too successful like too successful at making everything clean, and then creating, um, you know, hospital strains of golden staff that live in disinfectants. <laughs> uh, you know, it's so many ways in which we've managed through uh, technology and fossil fuel power to just get too good at doing one particular thing, and it turns into its opposite. So, how do you build the cultural mechanisms that says, no, that's um, that's going too far in, in that direction. and there's many, many different ways in which this uh, expresses uh, itself. But I find that theme coming through a lot rather than saying, oh these way, what we've been doing is bad, you know that fossil fuels have, have been this terrible bad thing. well yes, at the scale we've used them. Whereas if we thought them as this precious gift from nature and used them incredibly frugally over the last uh, few hundred years, uh, then uh, we, it would be quite a different uh, position we'd be in.
1: Yeah. I mean, so much, so much, (laughs) so much to say there. Um, The, your concept of uh, overusing something or inflating something is it's directly parallel with um one of the most impactful political economy texts that i've read from um a japanese literary critic named Kojin Kuratani called beyond capital nation state or beyond nation state capital and it's talking about the interlocking bromelian rings of nation state and capital and how every experiment in human organization uh, be it plunder and redistribution or be it um equality of um like uh, like a kingdom you can think of um, where where people are provided for and there's much more of a communal aspect or be a capitalism um, and state nation and capital would be the three parts that have been experimented with inflating right and capital capitalism late-stage capitalism has obviously had as its signature petroleum um, and in order to create what I referred to before as Chomsky's ide fixe of like what's beyond this in terms of structure of human society we really need to 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 ask more of these questions yeah
0: i i think for me i i keep going back to uh a lot of the uh the issues of of basics and in in the same way that permaculture started with that you know idea of food and and direct connection. I've, my recent work has foc- focused a lot on household uh, uh, level uh, because this level is sort of often taken for granted that um, and not understanding that it is actually the most basic uh, economic and social unit in society and whether you call that a, f- a family or but people who are living together in some sort of Um, uh, intimate social economic connection which is of course non-monetary and I think that uh, importance of that level sometimes has been missed in the early phases of uh, permaculture it was often the rugged individualist um, sometimes with a family in tow you know charting new uh, ground or experimenting in their own self-driven ways and then a, a second big wave was really more characterised by movements like uh, the Transition Towns movement which came out of uh, permaculture in its origins and was focused on the community uh, level and uh, I noticed in this this between the individual and the, the community level there was often people were Missing or taking for granted the household level, and uh, so my retro suburban workers come back, focusing on that how we revitalize the household and community non-monetary economies, and that a lot of the efforts to redesign society at a larger scale I believe will fail unless the sort of the foundation stones are. <laughs> are in place. And I think there's been a lot of work focusing on the individual, our psychology, our health and whatever. But what are these ordinary economic relationships? And ironically our mostly our households are too small to be sustainable while our industrial systems of doing everything in society are too big to be sustainable. So that the sweet point for some degree of uh, economic autonomy, uh, efficiency in resource use, provision of so much of um, the basic conditions of life in raising children, maintaining health, actually sort of work when there's a you know maybe in the five to ten people range in some sort of a, a household. Um, And we also know that as people um, face hard times, that household consolidation is actually the primary way that people cope with those more difficult times, you know, sometimes unwillingly, and we can already see that happening and the pandemic has actually accelerated that in, in, in many countries so a lot more focus on how can we do this better rather than just be sort of forced uh, forced into this. How can we experience it as uh, an empowering way to provide also a degree of political autonomy as we talk about larger scale uh, reorganisation. But we are, if we are isolated individuals then we are very very vulnerable to being Drawn back into complete dependence on the technosphere that you know promises to provide our needs at an individual uh, level, so that's been a you know a lot of uh, my more recent focus, and ironically, it it can be seen by some people as a social conservatism, you know, sort of. Um, supporting you know family and traditional uh, values at least in affluent societies but what that does is also connect to people who are politically not necessarily connected to uh, a lot of these ideas but can see the value for them in in, in what they are attempting to do in in a world of, of challenges and how are people going to not just survive, but thrive uh, through those challenges.
1: Mm, so good. So um, I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you about, and we'll have to schedule another conversation about the TIFA Foundation um, and the work that I'm doing. It's really a 30 plus year plan um, looking at incentivizing Longevity and true human health um, dismantling the systems that are not in favor of that in small country governments and royal family nations and so we've selected four specific uh, case study. Places in Bhutan Iceland Abu Dhabi as a city desert case study and Barbados. Um, to do the first kind of five-year trial period. And permaculture is obviously a huge part of that as are things like community microgreen growing operations and reinstilling the home garden and whatnot. But yeah, it's, it's a really big balance between, between societal level incentivization and changing the norms, um, which is obviously entrenched in education at the grassroots level. Um, so yeah, I'd love to talk to you more about that. And, and my last question was actually something that you've already um, brushed upon in terms of urban permaculture another one of my projects the future of cities and um, that I'm happy to advise for is is like this is fundamental to our consultancy um, and the design of very futuristic cities um, where do you see this moving towards and and like is it something that you feel will work or do you feel like you know, just like vertical gardens are never going to have the right quality of soil. So like, do you just see it as missing a potential (laughs) exactitude or do you think that there is promise? I
0: I see the uh, retrofitting of very high density uh, urban systems at scale uh, because of course we've always had uh, High-density urban systems, but you know they are a stone's throw from the the food that supported them. You know, at a very small, compact scale. Whereas now we have, you know, very large scale, but also uh, dense cities. And certainly, my retro suburbia work uh, has uh, focused on the suburban scale because it is uh, a level of spatial density that is commensurate with renewable. Energy base and that expresses itself in the ability to produce food in relatively low tech ways that, um, you know, at least all the uh, perishable uh, fresh fruit and vegetables and small livestock products can actually be produced in populations at typical Australian and American um, suburban densities if we were to reorganize society. Uh, so that means that idea of uh, retrofitting what we've already got and starting with uh, simple systems that are relatively easily adaptable uh, has been my priority. The, The idea of how we retrofit our larger densities, I think, is technically more complex. I don't think we have time to sort of rebuild the world anew in, and whether that's like in a million, um, 10 million rural eco-villages with state-of-the-art ecological buildings, even though I've been involved in in some of that. That, similar to we're going to build the new sort of -of state-of-the-art higher density ecological cities, I think the timelines for uh, the climate, the resource and the other crises that are actually already unfolding means that we know that is like with a rapidly growing economy and uh, resource base, that's a sort of a 100 year project plus to actually be then applying the lessons from those models to uh, that larger scale transformation. So we're going to be basically moving in, we are already moving into the crisis with what we've got so the retrofit of higher density uh, systems I, I've been more skeptical about but I've also recognized that rather than scarcity of materials once you move from an economy of uh, pointless consumption to uh, a more frugal economy huge amounts of existing building stock uh industrial materials are actually not needed because most of the world's economy is completely unnecessary (laughs) so that actually we face a a sort of a period of salvage uh, uh, economy where we can reuse things and of course that's actually been one of the one of the main aspects of permaculture projects that I've seen around the world is this creative reuse. Now a lot of that has been at the small scale, but it's okay, how do we retrofit large office buildings that are no longer needed um, for residential use? How do we reuse um, uh, things to be enable a lot of those higher density food production systems in aquaponics and um, uh, mushroom cultivation where instead of we're going to another factory in China and making all these plastic containers. No, we're actually taking what we already have and reusing it or um, using it for some new purpose. And so that's been the approach that I've taken. That when I look at the embodied energy in a lot of these systems, if you say we're going to manufacture all this stuff, do it from scratch, The full life cycle analysis doesn't add up, but if you're going to reuse something that already exists, and and see it not as some perpetually sustainable system, but something which is an opportunity in this generation and you know maybe a few into the future, um, then that's uh, that starts to look a lot more. possible. And, you know, at the extreme end, I say, you know, that our descendants, thousands of years into the future, will still have stainless steel knives, because there is so much stainless steel in the world, you know, it's not going away. <laughs> That's still going to be there. So that in, in that sense, there is so much that we can creatively reuse from what we've got, but that requires creativity and site and situation specific response to opportunity rather than the industrial model where we develop a program and uh, templates that can be replicated en masse. And that is a real change in thinking to How do we creatively use the opportunities of, uh, of each situation? sorry for the long answer <laughs> no i love it
1: it's, it's perfect it's perfect um so i want to respect your time here i'm so grateful i've spent this time with you and I, I know everyone listening is as well um if there's anything that you want to say in closing any kind of if people want to follow up with you or anything that you're doing where do they go
0: uh, yeah well i uh, can go to uh homegren.com.au and our Retro Suburbia work is at uh, uh, retrosuburbia.com and yeah we're sort of moving into uh, a lot more of the um, storytelling aspects of uh, this how we uh, tell stories of the future with our latest publication which is called Our Street, it's actually a key story of how we uh, retrofit suburbia and building on the the positive aspects of past history and how we move those into the future. So that's increasingly been a lot of my work is this how we uh, tell uh, the different stories and it's interesting that one of the great aspects of uh, Bill Mollison's projection of permaculture around the world was not just his knowledge um, uh, as an ecologist and uh, uh, polymath, but really as a storyteller uh, very much uh, in that uh, traditional uh, Australian uh, tradition of the yarn spinner, but also in the indigenous sense of uh, storytelling. So... uh, yeah, the, maybe that's something you get to as you get older.
1: I love it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, that's the preservation of the seeds, the preservation of the culture, the preservation of the story of the plants. It's all there. It's like, if that's not ethnobotany, I don't know what is. So, yeah. Thank you so much. So, so, so much. <laughs> I was listening to that for you. If you learned from or moved by the episode, pay it forward. Go to Apple now and leave a five-star review so others can benefit. Join the Institute for Aliveness for a one-week transformational fasting experience. Consider getting an astrology reading from Andy or enroll in the one-year health coach certification course. Whatever you do, don't let this learning pass you by. Do something now to impact your lifestyle for good.